0: Number 10 for Brendan Taylor. it's oh, got the Australian captain. We're talking about Rivada. We're talking about how good he is. And there it is. His 39th one-day international hundred. The king gets his crown at the Adelaide Go on, take it. Deep midwicket. Glenn Maxwell celebrates. You.
1: Welcome to the Dean at Stumps podcast, Zimbabwe's only weekly cricket show with expert analysis by Dean Duplessis.
0: Oh my goodness me, don't you just love the sound of the new intro to the Dean at Stumps podcast. Thank you very much to a combination of Ross Brownlee Walker, who made it sound good, and Barry Manandi, who ensured that uh, all the clips were uh, taken as well. Hello and welcome to the Dean at Stumps podcast. My name is Dean Duplessis. And it is a great pleasure to be with you as always. Now, if you're listening to this for the first time and you're wondering how on earth you can get to listen to interviews that I've had with the likes of David Gower, Michael Holding, Sean Pollock, Andy Flower, and many, many more, it's really quite simple. All you do is you go to your preferred podcast app and you search for Dean at Stumps. That's Dean and then at, not the email sign at, but A-T Stumps. And then you subscribe, and it's available on all the preferred podcast apps such as uh, iTunes, Spotify, Overcast, Downcast, Pocketcast, and any other cast you can think of that has a pod. Right, so great to be with you. I wonder what the weather is like in your part of the world here in Zimbabwe. The daytime is still beautiful and warm, but it's that gentle sun. It's not that abrasive, aggressive heat as uh, the seasons begin to change and the temperatures with it as well. So you Captain England. The one-day side that is in uh, the mid-1990s, born in Australia, moved to England, now lives back in Australia again. He's a mixed martial artist. Uh, he also uh, is a little involved with psychology as well. He very sadly lost his brother back in 2002 in a horrific motor accident in Perth. I'm, of course, referring to Adam Holyoke, who I was able to catch up with in uh, who now also, by the way, coaches Queensland, which is uh, quite nice for him as well. So uh, how did all of this come to pass? How is it that Adam Holyoke uh, ended up, well, being born in Australia, moving to England, playing for England, and now he finds himself back in the country of his birth again?
1: Yeah, I sort of never sort of set out for it to be that way. I mean, I was only 12 when I went to England, and I was still uh, um, just starting my secondary schooling. So obviously the cricket thing, well professional cricket was the furthest thing from my mind at that age so um, I just went there and then the path that took me on was all the way through to um, international cricket which was pretty lucky really
0: so when did cricket when did professional cricket start to become something that you decided hey you know what this is what I actually want to do for a living
1: um probably about two or three years after I was actually already a professional cricketer so when I did it I wasn't sure if I was making the right decision because I was more of a rugby player than a cricketer um, and cricket was just something that I did in between rugby seasons but rugby wasn't professional at the time so well, my parents really wanted me to go to university and, and play rugby um, but I got offered a professional cricket contract and I wasn't really enjoying my studying so I set out and I thought, well, if I don't really make it as a cricketer or I don't enjoy it, then um, I can always go back to uni and and play rugby. So um, I was literally probably on the verge of quitting in about 92, 93, and then I got my first class debut, so um, I carried on.
0: And of course, you would have been playing alongside some truly good, well, very special cricketers back in, in that particular era, 92, 93, playing for Surrey, because you would have had Alex mm-hmm. Stewart, who'd obviously been around for a long time. The great Waka Yunus was your overseas player. What was it like mm-hmm. as a youngster rubbing shoulders with those special players?
1: Yeah, it's amazing. I think they're probably some of my favourite memories because I mean, you're so young and, and these guys were household names. So it's always quite an eye opener do you know what I mean to be that young guy on the set side and looking up at these guys who are so famous you know Waka was probably the best bowler in the world at that stage um, so it's like, it was quite bizarre to come straight out of school and do rubbing shoulders with the best in the world but um, yeah I think that's probably some of my favourite memories actually come to think of it so amazing times
0: and now we fast forward to a time that I know that you enjoyed immensely the the Success that you and your late brother Ben, who we'll be talking about very briefly just now as well, had against the Australians. So Australia arrived in the country in 1997. Back in those days, it was just three one-day internationals, a whole heap of warm-up matches for the Aussies. And then you got into the real stuff, the Ashes. Just, just take us through that time. It was an incredibly, I would imagine, an incredibly special time for you, wasn't it? Because you made your debut. So many things went right for both you and for Ben. Again, those would be, I would imagine, some of those mantelpiece memories.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's funny, isn't it? We play cricket and, um, you know, sometimes we can play for so long and then you can be left with a handful of moments that are memorable. I mean, sometimes makes you wonder why we do it. We get cricket, we fail so much. So, um, but definitely that summer of 97 was was special. Um, You know, playing against Australia... Um, you know, that was the country of my birth and, you know, where I'd lived until I was 12 and all the scrutiny and criticism that I came under, me and my brother both came under playing against, um, against, you know, our country of birth. It was, you know, we were called everything, you know, Judas, turncoat, traitor, every name under the sun to do that. So then to come out and beat them 3-0 in the one day is, um, my brother got man of the match in the, third one the international I got it in the first and then I got man of the series as well so it was it was a you know whitewash and we beat them 3-0 and for me to get man of the series and my brother man of the match in one of the games was um pretty dominant performance by us and probably I think I think when you're challenging you know you know when you you know you're up against it and we knew me and my me and my brother knew we were We had our cards marked and they were after us, but it was, um, sometimes it's just nice that when your resilience and fortitude gets tested, but you come through. So it was definitely some of the most enjoyable moments of my career.
0: I'm listening very carefully to what you say, but I'm also listening carefully to how you talk. And I hear these little sort of it, the intertwining little clips of Australian accent and a bit of an English accent. I remember Kevin Peterson once saying that he felt that he had to change the way he spoke. So he tried very hard to get rid of the South African accent and and lean more towards uh, I do some form of an English accent, so at times it really sounded quite, you know, weird. Actually, um, mm. is that something? I mean, it may seem like a very, you know, silly or irrelevant question, but is that something that you actually did work on when you started, as you made your way up as a, as a first class cricketer to becoming an international cricketer? Did you feel that in order to be a part of the team, you had to try and be a bit more English?
1: Um. I think actually now looking back on it I can actually be, I think I can be quite proud and say that I've always kind of been myself, do you know what I mean and and that hasn't always been popular I haven't always been liked Um, you know um, if I was to be critical of myself, um, it might be the other way around and maybe I wish I had been a little bit more um, malleable, do you know what I mean rather than being so stuck in my ways and um, abrasive and um, you know, combative, which I guess they're words that you could use to describe myself as. I, like, um, but I don't think. I mean, I, I'm not saying my accent didn't change because yeah. my accent changes when I ring up to order a Chinese takeaway. I think I'm talking like a Chinaman to try and make myself yeah. <laughs> try and make good. It's like, but I've never. I can honestly put my hand on my heart and say I never changed accents to try and be accepted wherever I went. Um, and, and it was kind of like. And like I said, I, was, I wasn't particularly popular at school or when I first started out in the professional ranks, but um, whilst I might look back and be embarrassed by my behaviour at times, I can honestly put my hand on my heart and say that I've I've kind of always been true to myself and I've just been myself, so um, that's not always a good thing because people didn't always like me, but it's, um, I can honestly say I've never changed my accent to try and fit in anywhere. It has changed, I won't be lie about that, but you know anyone goes and spends any time period of time i spent 20 years in england so i'd expect my my accent to change but i kind of like also i was like you know it is what it is it's like i can't change the way i am or where i'm born i just if i'm being perfectly honest i don't belong in any one country um i never felt um particularly australian or english i know the english people wanted me to Sing the national anthem and sing, you know, like put my hand on my heart and say, you know, God save the Queen and everything. But I, I, I just didn't feel it. And I didn't feel that as an Australian, I've never felt particularly um, wanted anywhere. And I'm not, I don't say that as a sub story. I just, oh, no. I just never felt it. It's just, I wish I did. I really wish. I see these people who are fortunate enough to be born and raised in one country and feel that passion of their country. Um, It's a beautiful thing, and I'm I'm envious of that sometimes. But I just, I just never felt it. Don't get me wrong. I I would every single time I stepped onto a sports field. If you want to play me in a game of table tennis, I'll promise you I'll be giving 100%. Let alone going out and playing in an international game of cricket, I gave my heart and soul every time I stepped on the field. So people don't have to worry about that. But. No, I didn't. I don't. um, Yeah, I didn't particularly um, change the way I was or anything like that.
0: Yeah, and that's nice to know. I I often wonder if such a good point that you make. Adam, because, you know, uh, so many former uh, uh, cricketers who played for England, adam Lamb, Robin Smith, obviously Kevin Peterson. There's so many, you know, Michael Lum, Craig, Keith, Graham Hick from Zimbabwe. You know, a lot of them, Mm. well, some of them moved to England when they were relatively young, such as yourself. But I I wonder about the slightly older, you know, the Adam Lambs, the Robin Smiths, the Graham Hicks, even. Um, when they initially started playing for England, whether they did have that hand on their heart scenario as you 've just that, and that 's very interesting that that you talk about that because i mean you 've you 've You've grown up in one country, and like many of these players we've spoken about, they were literally born and bred there. That's where they learned to play their mm. trade. So they've made the move, hoping that they can better themselves. But you can't just change your allegiance. It's not like a TV channel or a radio station that you can just, with a flick of the switch, change it, and they are engrossed in something else, is it? Mm. I mean, it's quite a process. No,
1: it's not like some people who change their club team, you know, oh, that's my favorite team now. Yeah. I mean, you can do that. I mean, there's no. I don't think there's any coincidence that Manchester United is the most supported team in in England because, you know, and that changes depending on their success. Um, So, but with your country, you can't change that. And and I I came to England when I was 12. Um, I had no idea I was going to end up being a professional cricketer, um, let alone an international cricketer. So it wasn't like I went there with the intention of, of getting into the english side because i wasn't good enough to get into the australian side fact is i probably wasn't but that wasn't my intention at the time oh, of so um i just went there because i was 12 years old and my parents went there so over the years you just take it like i've been called everything trader turncoat you weren't good enough to get in the australian side so you went to england and you just got to wear it you know I mean, it's not like you can spend your life worrying yeah. about it or um being upset with people for saying those things but um yeah, sometimes it hurts because you you know you you feel like oh you, you get defensive about anything. Well, no, I'm not, and you start trying to defend it. When sometimes I think the best form of defence is, is to attack and to say, look, I, I wish I I came from one country and I wish that I lived, I was born in one country and lived there all my life and played for it. It's a beautiful thing, and you're fortunate if you're um In that position, but I think that's going to become less and less with the world getting smaller, tra- easier travel, etc. So, um yeah, it's a double-edged sword.
0: It is. It is. And then, Adam, you had the the thrill of captaining the one-day team, England's one-day team. I mean, uh, some of the highlights that stand out there for you. What what did you really enjoy most about captaining the the one-day team in the mid or the late 1990s?
1: I think it's just the, a lot of those guys are just good friends of mine, so it's, it's quite fortunate. I mean, it's unlike the Test side where it was very different personnel and I didn't necessarily feel the same camaraderie with those guys as, as what I did with the one-dayers. But when I played in the one days so it was just a good bunch of blokes and it's a beautiful thing when you can go out and play for your country or, or someone else's country. <laughs> and... Uh, and um, and just enjoy the guys you're playing with. So when I was out, we we played a tournament out in Sharjah, um, at, you know, four tournaments, four, four countries in that tournament, West Indies, Pakistan, India, and ourselves. And I was playing with guys like Mark Elam, Dougie Brown, Dean Headley, Matthew Fleming, um, Graham Thorpe. These guys are my mates. They're just my mates. So we could have been going out and playing for... Um, you know, just my local club side. It was just, you know, there's a few more people watching, but it's just when you're playing with a bunch of mates, it's, it's really fantastic thing. So, and that's probably my favorite memory of captaining England. And then, I I mean, look, I'd be lying if I said, it's not a a huge honor to captain any country. So let alone England, you know, it's one of the major cricketing nations. So, um, so I'm forever grateful and blessed that I, that I've done that. But, um, Yeah, it's just It's an achievement When I look back now And I go, wow Did I actually do that? It just seems so long ago And such a distant memory But it's, you know It's something I'm proud of
0: Do you think you would have Adapted nicely And you would have enjoyed The T20 format As it currently is?
1: Yeah, I think so Um, Look, I I think The shorter the game If there was a 10-over game Or a 5-over competition It would suit me even better I think the shorter the game The better And if you look through My stats My domestic stats I was always uh, a better short form player. Um, my, my strength was probably my physical, the physicalness of my game, um, rather than my powers of concentration which is obviously suited to the longer game. So the shorter format definitely suited me, but hey, I, I, don't, I don't complain because there was guys before me who didn't even get to play one day cricket. So I'm just grateful that I got to play a couple of years of it, um, just domestically.
0: And then, Adam, a very sad thing happened. And uh, as much as I understand that every human being has sadness to deal with, you know, it's one thing just talking about it, but it's another thing entirely when it happens to you. You then lost your brother Ben, who had a, who was a very big part of your life in 2002 in a car accident in Perth. If you will, please just, just take us through that, Adam, uh, you know, leading, you know, when you got the news and then how you respond as a human being and a cricketer as well because this isn't just your the guy who you know you would throw the ball to for example if he was in the gully you would throw the ball to one another making sure you were on your toes it's not somebody who scored who who was involved in partnerships with you at surrey you know 100 run partnerships bowling partnerships whatever the case may be away from all of that first and foremost he was your brother he was your flesh and blood
1: yeah um yeah, he was. And, and, and we kind of had a special bond because we, um, we went to boarding school. We both went to boarding school very young. My, my parents were posted overseas with work and England was the closest country, English speaking country that we could get an education in. So we, we both started boarding school quite young. And, um, anyone, and I'm sure a lot of the listeners have, have been to boarding school or at least understand it, you know, it can be quite lonely there at times. And, and I was his big brother and I sort of keep an eye on him. And then, when he finished boarding school, he came and lived with me. I was already a professional cricketer. So we had a pretty special bond. Um, look, we're brothers as well, so we fought. Oh, we, yeah. <laughs> we did everything that the brothers do. But we, we lived in one another's pockets quite a lot from a very young age. So um, I would say we'd probably – it was an extraordinary brotherhood in that we worked together. We grew up and went to boarding school together. So it was um, – yeah, look, without that, it's the, the worst thing that's ever happened to me um, by a long way. And um, something which to this day, I, I, you know, I, I, I'm still struggling with and um, I'm still trying to f- try and make sense of, but um, it is part of my journey as well. And I, and I there's been things from it that I've grown. I've grown as a person and I've had to desert, develop resilience and um, strength of character and um, all these things as well. So I don't lose sight of that. And then I also don't lose sight of the fact that, you know, other people lose their their, their siblings, you know, very young in life. And I was fortunate enough to do the things that I did do with him. So um, I, I try not to lose sight of that. And that's usually when I'm in a good place, then it's easy to just smile and enjoy the times we had together and, um, and just look back favorably on those times and think how fortunate I was. And then, and then there's other times when it's not so easy. And I, and I look back and I, and I miss him and, um, and I wish he was here still. So, um, it's, there's, yeah, there's, there's different, um, times that I have different emotions
0: about it. Absolutely. I, I always find that I miss my late brother Gary when, you know, there's something special, like a, a very special interview with, Michael Holding or or one of the players that he enjoyed as a commentator or that he was able to watch video footage of. Uh, And then you you do miss him because you'd like to hear if he would be critical of the way that you did the interview or whether he would have enjoyed it. But then there's some of the really happy times that you remember as well. So, as you say, it all all comes together and eventually we, we find ways. And then mixed martial yeah. arts. Now, this is something I've always uh, enjoyed immensely, Adam, uh, and I know that a lot of people do. Tell us about your your, your style of mix, mixed martial arts and how did you get into that and how far have you progressed? I have no doubt that you, you must be well well past your black belt by now. Yeah, I'm, I'm, well,
1: I'm well and truly out of that, thank God. Um, it, was, it was strange. like I've, I've done boxing from the age of 12 and and always did that throughout my career. It's not something that, you know, you talk about a lot. Um, yeah. So people, the everyday cricket fan would have been completely unaware of that. So um, when I announced that I was um, turning professional as a mixed martial artist, I've, I know for a fact that the world was, well, the cricket world was a bit shocked and thought that it was some publicity stunt. But, as um, um, you know, I, I'd done boxing from a young age and I'd probably done a good, you know, 10 years of Brazilian jiu-jitsu as well, so, um, and it just coincided. It was just like one of those perfect storms where uh, I met the right person at the right time, and and my my trainer, and he happened to have connections with promoters who wanted to see me fight, and I just um, suffered a massive financial loss in the global financial crash. So, it, um, it was just one of those things where It would have been easy to hide away from it, and you know, say this is not where I planned my life to go, or um, or to just go with it and just um, just go with the flow of the way things were going, and and just and just go with it. And you know, and and it turned out to be three or four years of um, highs and lows. I enjoyed it. It was tough. It was um, you know, again, a lot of people from the outside who didn't know me saying that i was just selling out and it was just a publicity stunt mm. um which could be quite hurtful because well in more ways than once because when you're getting punched in the face or <laughs> wrestled on the ground it's like i can tell you it's not a publicity stunt so um it was something which uh, i am glad i did but i'm also glad i'm not doing anymore because one day i just woke up and i decided I don't want to do this anymore. I don't. I don't want to. I don't want to get punched in the face anymore. I'm just. I'm. I'm over it, and I'm not that person. I don't want to be that person anymore. I don't want to beat people up. I don't want to. Yeah, um, I just don't want that. I just want to be a good person and a peaceful person, and and I'm not interested in hurting people anymore, or or. Or I just want to get out of the circus. If you know what I mean. So, um, I just. Yeah, I think there's just been defined periods in my life and I've kind of gone along with them but then had moments of realisation that I've had to change and evolve as a person and that was was one of them. I had to evolve to to my environment and I did but eventually one day I said, look, hey, I can't do this forever. I've got to evolve out of this as well.
0: So you spoke also, Adam, about investments that didn't quite work out the way you and your family were hoping and you lost a lot of money with the financial crash. You know, many people yeah. can be can be prone to, to take matters into their own hands and say, why me? And, you know, it can lead to horrific thoughts. Suicide, I would imagine, can be very high on the agenda for somebody who's been dealt a blow like that. But yet you managed to find a way... Of making things work. Did you ever go into that very dark place, you know? Because obviously, you would have lost your your brother by then. Many things had gone wrong, as opposed to right. Mm. Did you ever find yourself in that dark place, thinking, "I tell you what, the quickest and the easiest way out now would be to, you know, to end it all"?
1: Um. No, I don't. I, I don't. I'm not sure. Hey, look, I'd be lying if I said that I didn't find. Those times hard. I mean, probably the darkest time was straight after my brother. Um, and probably the, the hardest thing about all that was um, my brother died. And then, I, hey, I was still the captain of the sorry I still had to lead the ship. So, turning up, putting on a brave face, and having to lead uh, um, other men into battle and be their leader. Um, when you know, sometimes when something like that's happened, you, you just want to. You don't. You don't want to be strong. You don't want to be the leader. You just want to. Sit back and, and take some time out, but I think not taking that much time for myself and just getting straight back into it, um, that was that was tough. I mean, losing money. I, I always say, well, every time we go through a tough time, we build resilience. So if you if you're like a chap, I take um, a toy off of a three year old child, they ball their eyes out, they go to pieces because that's the worst thing that's ever happened to them. Mm. Um, then after a while they grow out of that because they go, Hey, yeah, the toy is taken off me, but hey, eventually I'll get it back. So they realize that, you know, the sadness is only temporary. And if they're patient, that happiness will come back. And, um, and I guess, you know, fortunately or unfortunately, depending whether you've got your positive head or your negative head on, um, when bad things happen, um, you learn and you grow from it every time. When my brother died, that was without doubt. The hardest thing that had ever ever happened to me. That was my toy getting taken off me as a two year old. That was, it was, you know, it was a really tough thing. I was like 30 years old and, um, um, but from that, uh, I grew disturbing strength. It was like, um, it gave me resilience beyond anything else that I could have ever hoped for because I was like, if they can take my, brother and, you know, and how important he was to me and, and everything that, then what are they going to do to hurt me? What are the, what was, what are they going to throw at me that's going to hurt me? And if you want to tell me if I'd exchange all the money I had for my brother back, it's like, I wouldn't even think twice. So yeah, yeah. taking my money off me wasn't, didn't seem big compared to what I'd been through with, with my brother. So I think it's all relative to what you've been, if you haven't been through that much and you lose your money, then I can say I'm not blaming people who do that because at that time, you know, you either find the strength to get through it or you don't. And I'm I'm certainly not here to criticise people who take their own life because if you get to that stage, you you know, you you might be, you're obviously in a bad way and I'm not here to judge those people. But um, for me, it it never crossed my mind. Um, I don't, you know, um, I'm not saying I I wasn't sad or I wasn't, wishing that the pain of losing my brother or the pain of losing money would go away. Of course it was, but, um, using the resilience that I built for my brother done was also, Hey, like there was a time when I felt like when my brother died, I felt like the sun wasn't going to come up again. but it did. And, you know, I look at my children, I look at them smiling in the morning and, and I, and I'm happy. Um, so losing some money, I drew on the strength from that. I was like, Hey, I felt like this after my brother died, but, it came good again so if i could come good after my brother dying then what are you going to throw at me that's going to like disturb mm-hmm. me nothing's going to disturb my peace so um i, I just I've, I've developed a sort of quite good resilience from that those events really
0: oh, you certainly did and a uh, massive inspiration i think to those listening who may be in very similar situations as well the sun will shine yes,
1: again you know it's like a tough time for people out there and yeah. Um, you know, it's, you know, I hear a lot of stories, you know, it's been really tough. This COVID has been hard for people and then, you know, um, people have lost their business, people have lost loved ones. And as again, we're back in another one of those times, like the global financial crash and, and I just think, you know, people just got to sort of try and realize that the hard times they have been before and draw on them again to get themselves through this period.
0: And now, Adam, you're coaching the queensland team as well uh it's a show, well obviously we're going into winter, even you are in Australia winter so uh, but how's that been Has, have you been in the, in the in the business long for, of coaching queensland, and what's that been like for you
1: um, it's um yeah well it's been weird we haven't been able to we started back coaching today actually, so um, it's um it's a you know, I don't. I don't believe we've had it anywhere near as bad out here as what England has, or other places in Europe, or especially America. But yeah. um, for us, um, it's been relatively mild. I think in Australia, they always like to feel like we're important, so they want to feel like we're part of it all. But we're, we're not. We know we're down, tucked away in the corner of the country, of the world, and and we haven't had to do much. But we've still had the restrictions. We have to respect that. You know this thing can spread, so we've still had to do the restrictions and and everything like that so um, so um yeah, that's I mean we had to shut down and for a couple of months then. It's um, picked up again today. So I think restrictions are easing all around the world.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and and just tell us about about the team that you're working with. In conclusion, Adam, we could talk all night, but uh, there's things to do and places to be. So um, in, in terms of the team, the current crop of, of players that you have, tell us about some of the experienced players and then some of the up-and-coming up players. Um, well,
1: we've got... Um, yeah, we've got... You know, we've got a fairly good side. We've got three of the current Australian side or the squad in our side. We've got um, Manus Labashain, obviously number two player in the world. Yeah. Joe Burns, who's also just slipped to the top ten in the world. Um, and then Michael Nisa, who's um, been in the Australian squad for the last year as a, as a quick bowler. So, And then we've got some other guys drifting around. We've got Mitchell Swepson, who's the leg spinner, who's... Probably the number two spinner in Australia after Nathan Lyon. And um, and then we've got uh, a number of others. We've got Jack Wilbermouth, who's probably the best young all-rounder in the country. And uh, then we've got a number of um, a talent. We've got a very, very talented squad. So I'm fortunate to be involved in that setup and and um, get to work with players of that quality every day.
0: Hopefully, if uh, things return to, well, it'll be a different type of normal, I would imagine uh, you would like to try and uh, and scoop up a couple of the awards that maybe could have or the cups, should I say, the trophies that could have eluded you last year, because initially I was actually I'll tell you what I was actually at. The Gabba for the opening encounter of the uh, of the Big Bash League. My first visit to Australia, and I was lucky enough to be at the Gabba when when we played. off I say we, uh, but when Queensland played their first game, and I saw Mitchell Shrepson uh, on on a hat trick as well. It was an incredible atmosphere. So I mean, mm. Big Bash League is special. I understand that, but I would imagine Sheffield Shield and your one day, your fifty over tournament is is equally as important in its own way as well.
1: Well, yeah. They're, I mean, every every time you play for your state or your county or any domestic side, they're important. I mean, they're a professional games, so they and they're logged in the archives of history. So any of those games are important. Um, but big, you know, big bash is obviously played in big stakes in front of big crowds. Um, the first class crickets, first class cricket. So that's um, I think that's the bread and butter. That that stuff's recorded throughout history, and that's kind of one of the things that you get measured by as a cricketer. So. Yeah. Um, yeah, Sheffield Shield might not be played in front of as big a crowd, but obviously, equally as important.
0: Adam Holyoke, thank you for your time. Wow, it's been wonderful just, just getting into your mind and hearing your struggles, your battles, but also, more importantly, all the wonderful things that you have achieved as a cricketer, a captain, and just as a human being. Wishing you nothing but the very best for your future. Thank you very much. Thanks, mate.
1: Hi, this is Danny Morrison and you are listening to this wonderful podcast, Dean at Stumps podcast. It's a little ripper and Dino, I know he's missing the double Ds if you please. Dino, duple what a wonderful podcast. Get amongst it, listen to it lots. It's a ripper.
0: Uh, thank you very much, Danny Morrison. It's very kind of you to say so. I just love the way he talks. Right, so there we are. that was Adam Holyoke. Uh, what an interesting conversation that was. Uh, just trying to get in the mind of somebody who's been through a lot and uh, I don't know, at times maybe still seems to be on the verge, uh, but but still is able to keep it together with a wonderful wife and, and, and children as well. Thank you very much indeed for listening to the Dean at Stumps podcast. We have a lot more to come. Don't you worry about that. But in the meantime, just a reminder that you can subscribe to the podcast via iTunes, Spotify, Overcast, Downcast, pocket cast or any other cast you choose to do please spread the word please get as many people to like subscribe and share on social media as well hey thank you so much for listening please stay safe we'll be back pretty soon but until then goodbye
1: you've been listening to dnet stumps zimbabwe's only
0: weekly cricket podcast